just I'm being able to visualize things in terms of numbers mm-hmm. and have this gift. Even going to the racetrack when I was 10, 11 years old, by the time I was 14, I was making a good living at the track just by following uh, statistics and numbers at the track. And I was making over 100 grand a year at the track. And co- <laughs> my basketball coaches were taking me out of class to take me out to the track and so forth. <laughs> and so at the age of 14, you're like living the life at the track. <laughs> yeah, when they handed me my high school diploma, they said, I don't know why, how he deserves this. He spent more time at the track than at the school. Welcome to Enthusiastically Los Angeles, the podcast where your favorite amateur enthusiast talks to the dreamers, makers, movers, and shakers that have made this city, and especially its downtown, among the best in the world. Oh, and who's your favorite amateur enthusiast? That would be me, Glenn Gritzner. On today's episode, we talk to Sed Moses. The title on his business card reads simply, the proprietor for his company, 213 Ventures. But if today's downtown LA was a company, his title could just as easily be the creator. Said had a vision that downtown LA could and would be a nightlife mecca. And 20 years and 26 bars later, he's arguably done more than anyone to create today's thriving urban center. From making mint juleps for his grandmother to spending his high school days at the track, to investment banking wonderkin, to aspiring punk rocker, to eventually hospitality maven, We'll follow Sed's unlikely path to downtown LA impresario, and we'll hear how his company's motto of to serve is to prosper guides everything they do. Just don't ask for any flavored vodka. When I got the idea to start a podcast, I knew immediately who I wanted my first guest to be, said Moses, because it's not an overstatement to say that this podcast wouldn't exist without him. Before Seven Grand first opened, I didn't drink bourbon, I didn't know that quality cocktails were a thing, and in many ways they really weren't a thing and hadn't been since before Prohibition. Way too many Cosmos and drinks ending in teeny were being served throughout the city. My go-to drink was Chivas and Seven, and I was entirely too partial to anything that had blue curacao in it. And as someone who worked in downtown, the options for a happy hour drink were limited to hotel bars and grimy dives. And more importantly, there was no culture of class and service and conviviality. Getting a drink meant just that, basically procuring alcohol. Then Seven Grand opened. Seven Grand wasn't Sed's first bar. In fact, it wasn't even his first bar in downtown. That honor belongs to Golden Gopher. But Seven Grand was the first bar to make a statement. It was a bar focused on a single spirit, whiskey, but more importantly, it was serving really high-quality cocktails, cocktails with history and craft and balance, served by knowledgeable bartenders for whom this was more a career like a chef or a sommelier than it was just a job. And unlike some of the early New York cocktail bars, it wasn't exclusive. You could get whatever you wanted and nobody was going to judge you. If it was early enough and they weren't too crowded, the bartender might encourage you to try something new. But hey, if you wanted a shot in a beer, you got a shot in a beer. The atmosphere was welcoming. It wasn't high-end and it wasn't divey. It was high-quality yet accessible, and both the drinks and the service were on another level. 
downtown, and in my view, the entire city of L.A. had never really seen anything quite like it. As someone who has worked in downtown almost continuously since 1993, I followed Seven Grand's opening closely, eager for something new and interesting. During that time, I also read interviews where the guy behind Seven Grand, who turned out to be said, said he wanted to open 10 bars in downtown. 10 bars! This guy was crazy. I mean, how would downtown ever support 10 new bars? Well, the answer to that question was in the future. For now, I just wanted to try this new place on the second floor of one of those cool old buildings on 7th Street. And I was hooked. For those of you who remember the TV show Cheers, I sort of became the norm of Seven Grand. I would walk in and the bartenders would yell my name and I'd sit in my stool and I'd ask them to show me something new and... Well, if the rest isn't quite history, it is why you're listening to this right now. These days, Seth is a busy guy and hard to nail down. I wanted to do the interview in one of his bars, but was told to just come to his office. Hey, whatever's easiest for him. I got there and got set up in a conference room, but as Seth walked in, he said, wouldn't this be more fun to do in the bar? Well, he didn't have to tell me twice. I gathered everything up and we hustled downstairs to the place that used to be my home away from home, Seven Grand. They were setting up for that day's service, so we found a table in the corner, but you'll hear some bar noise in the background. We got a couple drinks because it just seemed right, and we settled in. Okay, so here we sit in Seven Grand. Um, not really the bar that started it all, but sort of feels like the bar that started it all in some ways. Uh, we'll get to that. Um, we have a couple of delicious cocktails in front of us already, which only seems appropriate. You may hear some bar sounds in the back in the background. Um, uh, so said, thanks for doing this. Um, I guess I just want to start by saying, how did this, how did this crazy adventure you're on get started? Where are you from? What was, uh, what was growing up like said Moses? All right. Well, this is, this is fun, Glenn. I'm glad to be doing this with you yeah, over you. some cocktails. My favorite, my favorite place as to sh- be as it should as, be as at a bar. Right. And, um, enjoying cocktails with my friend too so um for me it all started back in bristol virginia where i'm where i was born um my father is from out here in los angeles and my mom's from out in virginia and she was out in los angeles covering the beatnik scene for look magazine and met my father (laughs) who had recently broken up with uh, a gal named Marilyn Monroe now. <laughs> That's a whole story behind that. My dad told me some, gave me fresh insights on Marilyn Monroe. Um, and they, they met out here in Los Angeles and fell in love. And my dad went back out there with her to get married. Well, and we should point Virginia. out your, your dad was a, a very prominent, very famous, well-known uh, painter, uh, artist. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, he, he recently passed. So yeah, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. We're still still grieving that, but he led a, a remarkable life. One mm-hmm. that's uh, given me a lot of uh, good perspectives on creativity with what I do, and and just a of a, a way of life, a thirst for life. You know, it, anything is possible. Was always his thing. You can do anything you want. You're only limited by your own 
by yourself. You know. Well, you're proving that now. So he your, taught me. He taught me that. So. So your mom pushed thank Marilyn. You, thank your mom, you, Dad. Your mom pushed Marilyn Monroe aside. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kicked, kicked her to the curb. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe to the curb, and and they got married back in Virginia after knowing each other only. I think it was four or five weeks. Oh. So it was it was quick. And how long were they married? Uh, 16 years. Mm-hmm. They got divorced for 39 years and they got remarried two years before my dad died. <laughs> Quite. So that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. That's a whole other <laughs> podcast. Interesting story. So not a conventional childhood growing up with the son of an, of a kind of renegade artist. Los Angeles is, uh, definite and kind of an iconic Mm-hmm. renegade artist from Los Angeles and then my mother's from Virginia and she was very much very different in that she was um, grew up in the southern more of traditional southern household aristocratic family Virginia her grandfather was the governor of Virginia hmm. and um, my my grandmother growing up with my grandmother back there who I'd spend the summers with every year we eventually moved back to Los Angeles, but I would spend my summers with my grandmother up until I was 13, 14 years old. Mm. And that was a big influence on me as well in terms of hospitality. She's the one that really taught me what hospitality is all, all about and taught me to start. She actually taught me to, how to start making mint juleps when I was four years old. And I got the honor of serving her and her friends when I was five, and the tradition was, was to to make the mint juleps. They were called uh, skillet juleps, and you'd marry the bourbon, you'd cook them in the skillet, and marry the bourbon sugar, and and um, and the mint overnight, and then serve over crushed ice the next day. <laughs> yeah, and, so and it was a mint julep the first drink you ever made. It was. I mean, he had four. I don't, know, I don't know how much farther back first you could cocktail, really First cocktail, yeah. Sorry, I, I didn't really do much before yeah. that. But um, but it was a good start. And the tradition, I fell in love with the tradition of how to serve the mint julep, which mm-hmm. in Virginia is you serve the mint julep in the afternoon in the heat of the humid, humid summers until, right. the, until the first fireflies come out. First firefly and mint julep cups go down is that's a sign dusk is... It's oh. dusk is, and the sun's mm-hmm. about to set. Mm-hmm. First fireflies. So my grandmother would not touch her Mitchell cup after the first firefly came out. <laughs> and she would, her and her friends would all switch to the next drink of the evening upon the fireflies. And, and what they might be, what, what were you making after the fireflies came out? Um, I was making bourbon and branch water, which is a lot easier drink to make than a julep. <laughs> yeah. no, and, no skillets involved. <laughs> no skillets involved. And a, a, a bourbon and branch, branch water is an expression for the local water that f- flows over, the, over natural limestone into Virginia, over the mountains and into Virginia. And it has a natural salinity to the water that mixes perfectly with bourbon. So mm. I've been trying to bottle that and, and serve it. I was going to say, it, why, is, my bars. why is this not on a menu yeah, yet? Yeah, branch Probably. water. And That's it's called head. branch water because if you look at the tributaries of the rivers flowing into that part of Virginia, it looks like branches on a map. So they call it branch water. 
So the seeds of your future as a hospitality maven got laid at four years old. Um, but uh, I, I'm assuming it took a little while. I know it took a little while to get into that. So where did you where did you go? I mean, I know you were splitting your time. Where did you mostly go to high school, for instance? Where did you? Yeah, it was definitely a circuitous route to where I am now. Um, <laughs> we'll get to when you were a math yeah. nerd in a little bit. We're not there yet. <laughs> yeah, well, I went to school in Los Angeles. Um, went to a little school in, in, in Santa Monica Canyon, Canyon School. It's like a very old mm-hmm. school. Back when Santa Monica Canyon was very f- funky, it was like mostly artists and writers. And Christopher Sherwood lived around the corner, and a lot of musicians. And is this like the seventies when, like, you know, Linda Ronstadt was like in the canyon or something, yeah. and the Eagles were around and all that stuff? Yeah, it was. It was. It was a lot funkier back then. And um, grew up down there. My father had a studio in Venice, so I spent my time between kind of the um, between. Venice and and Santa Monica Canyon, and went to school at, at Crossroads when it first started. Mm-hmm. Um, I discovered, according to my math teacher, that I was a genius in conceptual mathematics from an early age. I was like deriving formulas they still use at the school today. Apparently, I don't. Um, even, I don't even know what conceptual <laughs> mathematics is. <laughs> it's a, it's. It's just obvious to me. I guess I have this gift. I don't know where it came from. Maybe it was just from my dad's influence of conceptually being a artist. Yeah, being an artist. And um, but just I'm able to visualize things in terms of numbers Mm -hmm. and have this gift. Even going to the racetrack when I was ten, eleven years old. By the time I was fourteen. I was making a good living at the track just by following uh, statistics and numbers at the track, and I was making over a hundred grand a year at the track. And co- my basketball coaches were taking me out of class to take me out to the track and so forth. <laughs> and so, at the age of fourteen, you're like living the life at the track. <laughs> yeah, when they handed me my high school diploma, they said, "I don't know why how he deserves this. He spent more time at the track than at the school." Were you like anybody's, you know, I don't know, bookie or I don't know, were you doing anything with uh, off-track betting or something? No, I I was playing an arbitrage between the East Coast and West Coast with betting, but, um, but because the pools were different and you could you could you could take advantage of that of the um, the natural bias for West Coast people to bet West Coast horses and East Coast horses to bet East Coast horses in big races, but I was not booking bets so, for other people so you, so you, but so you so, had some sort of like some sort of quasi algorithm for how to bet horses oh yeah the i was building algorithms <laughs> with my math teacher and um and then that translated i was affecting the odds at santa anita and the local tracks del mar and so forth because i was betting a little bit of you know betting thousands of dollars on a race when i was really confident about the results and that would affect naturally affect my odds which would drop and you're making and you're making 100 grand a year and you're making 100 grand a year doing this at 14 yeah up until i was about 17 when i switched to the stock market because i was hurting my and then then i was building quant models for the stock market like 17 18 and last couple of years of Finishing up high school, and then so you so you graduated from cross so you graduated from Crossroads, right? And then did you you went, you went to college? Mm-hmm. Yeah, where'd you go? I went to Harvey Mudd, mm-hmm. which is a cool school that's kind of competitive with Caltech and MIT, right? But a little more um, 
smaller school than those, but very, very technical, very, very tough school in terms of, but I already had a big advantage in math, so I ended up doing very well and learning computer science there too. And building, were your parents, building models for the stock market on the school computers yeah, too. Were your parents like mystified how they had like a quant jock for a kid? They couldn't understand it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we well, got the sounds of downtown going on. Yeah, well, let fire engine go by. Um, yeah, they, my father was totally mystified. Like, how, how do I have this kid that's... But I think it was partly our financial situation was always in crisis mode growing up because my father was always spending much more than he than he had <laughs> based and it was, he, we're living painting to painting that he sold you know and so you were that incentivized was slow. to figure so it out. i so i figured I, I i'm the oldest son i gotta figure this <laughs> i gotta figure this shit out and like figure out a way for us to like have a little more um dedicated a back, a backbone dedicated. to our financial situation so I, I don't know. It's just, it was crazy that I had this ability at the track. It seemed obvious to me. I'd look at the form. I go, Why is it oh, everybody obvious. doing this? <laughs> yeah, this is. Um, so so, so. what you, would you major in at, uh, at Harvey Mudd? <clears throat> um, I, at Harvey Mudd, I, I, I only went one year, and then I transferred to UCLA. I was, was, was going to say, I thought you went to UCLA. Engin- yeah. engineering. I got my double degree mechanical engineering computer science ucla and you were building quant models for the stock market was that like your collegiate hobby like other kids were at frat parties and you were building quant models yeah i wasn't much of a frat kid i was more of a, like a punk rock kid at that point punk rock i was playing in in bands and what was the name of your what was the name of your punk band i was in a few um it was death garage um was kind of the biggest one. I was in a like a reggae punk ska band called 3AM. Um, I was in a band called What Is This? But I was terrible. I was a terrible musician and got thrown out what'd of you, every band. Every you, band I was in. So it was kind of a dead end career for me. Would Pro- probably maybe saved my life because I was kind of a reckless kid. What did you What did you play? I played guitar. And sang vocals too. I was good at writing songs, but I was just not a talented musician. Are there any recordings of any of this that exist there, somewhere? There's a little bit of things that were obscure. A couple, we had a couple of songs like on K Rock and oh, so you and, you know, so you got, you guys and, went somewhere. Um, some of the bands I was in turned into major major bands too, like Chili Red Hot Chili Peppers and so forth. But, um, but they'd kicked you out by that time, long before. <laughs> And, and that and, probably helped help their career substantially. Um, so, so it was kind of I was kind of doing my Harvey Mudd um, and UCLA. I was doing playing in punk bands and listening to punk music and and using the, the school's computers to do my own back testing on on the stock market. Still playing the horses too. Yeah, how many mechanical engineering, computer science double majors were there in your punk bands? Probably not. Probably not too many. <laughs> I got hazed terribly at Harvey Mudd. So they're like, "Who is this punk rock kid?" Um, yeah, amongst the- a bunch of computer cocks, and there was it was terrible hazing rituals at that school. Um, so I was constantly on the run, jumping out of windows from my second story. Um, 
dorm dormitory. The, the, the computer science kids were bullies. Oh yeah, terrible <laughs> bullies. They got they all got hazed. I guess this freshman too. So they were out to get revenge on the next breed of freshmen, and I was an easy target, being this crazy punk rock kid. So anyway, but so it was um. Where were so, we? So you, yeah, so you were at UCLA. You're double majoring. You're doing the tracks. You're doing your quant models. So then you, you graduate with mechanical engineering, computer science, and you do what after you graduate? Yeah, well, I was I was told to, to to take these majors based on job opportunities. Which by the time I graduated, I, there was only jobs in like um, defense company jobs mm. like TRW and Lockheed and so forth, which I had no interest in going to work for a defense company at the time so so by my quant models were working really well on the stock market so i went to work for a firm doing doing uh research for for a brokerage firm um and then that i was so successful at that that i ended up starting up my own firm that i built up for over the next few years managing managing money for people yeah managing money for people ended up managing so much that i stopped taking new clients and was handling like bill gates and soros money for george soros and so forth and actually built up a pretty remarkable track record over a period of like seven eight years so so you built these quant models in the stock market you come out you you do a little work you, you figure out it's working, you get, and how did you end up with those kinds of, I mean, those are obviously, you know, top of the pyramid guys. And how did you end up, sort of how did they end up investing with you? Um, well, they saw my results. I, I won a couple, won the uh, U.S. investment championships with the highest returns in their history of their contest or something. Oh. So that got me a lot of press. I didn't and know that was a, a thing. There was an article on me in Forbes. And how and you're so forth, and I was still like and you're twenty five. I was gonna say you're twenty. Whatever, I was like four, twenty five, six, something. I was like twenty two when that Forbes piece came out. I think so. I was so, very young, and um, yeah, they called me the next Peter Lynch or something. It was this crazy article, <laughs> but um, but it was ultimately I, I was still kind of more in, interested in the subculture of LA, playing in bands. I ended up running like underground clubs with bands and stuff at the same time i was doing this quant building these computer models for predicting stock prices our the high highest probability of stocks to double within a year was was um was the models i was building um so it, it was kind of the bifurcated career kind of people would have the perception that i'm a conservative person based on the firm I built but I was more but my real love was the, under, the underground rock and, roll, say, rock and roll scene in Los uh, Angeles all your investment friends probably thought you were a degenerate and all your <laughs> punk rock friends probably thought you were a you know straight laced guy or something right yeah exactly <laughs> it was kind of a I was a conundrum from early on and somewhere in there just as an aside you did you met uh, somebody who's going to be on this podcast Gary Leonard at some point during all the oh yeah J- Gary was very much part of that punk scene i was playing at venues like alice bar and and uh and gorky's and places like that and and hanging out there and 
Gary, so you're, was, Gary was always a part of that scene and seeing those early bands and yeah. punk rock bands in Los Angeles. So you're, so you're managing money by day. You're, you're sort of in the underground, kind of still doing your punk thing by night. And at this point, people li- listening to this are, are, th- are thinking, I thought I was going to hear about the guy who like, opened up all these bars and jo- formed this huge hospitality group. Um, so uh, given that it's not abundantly obvious, except for the mean ability to cook a skillet julep at the age of four, this is your future. Uh, what, at what point do you start to sort of think about you know, the next phase of your, of your life when you're, when you're managing all this money and obviously being very successful? Yeah, well, it, I've realized at some point that the f- finance thing was kind of a dead end for me in terms, I felt like I was going spiritually bankrupt because I ended up hanging out with a lot of people that weren't my type of people and my type of culture. Not that they were bad people per se, but they were just—they were just more about money. I, I did it; it was like a game for me, and trying to trying to to figure out the system and trick the system so in my favor. But um, yeah, making money the, was almost a nice result of having fun with the models and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And by then, at by ninety, I opened my first bar in '96. It was kind of doing underground places up until then. And then 96 was first bar Liquid Kitty that I opened. Mm-hmm. And I had so much fun opening that venue. I was, And that was where? Uh, it was in West L.A. Mm-hmm. I was living in Venice at the time. And how did you end up doing that? I mean, obviously, you just had an interest in it sort of in your social life. How did that end up that you actually opened a bar? Well, I was a big fan of some bars that were in Hollywood at the time. At that time, Hollywood had kind of an edgy scene, underground scene. There was um, Smalls KO, Three Clubs. Um, um, the Olive, those were all really influential. I went to, I went to all those bars. <laughs> influential for me, and I went to... I spent a New Year's at Smalls once, I think. Anyway, Yeah, a lot of fun. And they they were very inspirational bars for me. It had a new, a whole kind of personality and attitude attached to them, but the, at the same time, very hospitable. Um, the Burgundy Room, that was another one. Yeah. Yeah, wow. And some of the guys that started those bars are still good friends of mine and big influences on me. Um, so based on those bars, and I lived in Venice, I didn't want to, there was no Uber back then, so it wasn't a great a idea clo- to drive across town. Yeah, I need a bar closer to my house. <laughs> I had already been running underground nights at some other bars. And so I said, what the hell, let's start our own bar. Me and my high school buddies started up. Liquid Kitty, which was named after a racehorse that I had owned, actually. <laughs> it was kind of a play on liquid liquidity. Oh. Um, and you owned uh, a horse then at some point during your yeah, I owned days a few, at the track. Yeah, a few horses. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, it was okay. fun. Yeah. So, um, so you opened up that. So I opened up that bar, and I fell in love with the bar. This little, this little kind of divey bar that had, we had punk rock. Uh, barbecues and punk rock nights and played kind of had our you know celebrating the subculture of, of music in the venue and and cocktails too it was a cocktail bar so and was this still though kind of on the side for you or at that point it was on the side but i f- was so passionate about it i loved the place and i what i found is that the bar business provided um what I was looking for in my investments too, kind of low, low 
risk from my perspective relative to the stock market and the horse races, I guess, <laughs> yeah. and, and, uh, good, and good margins and so much fun. I could toast a party every night with my friends, meet new people, um, ended up meeting my wife there, actually. At Liquid Kitty? At Liquid Kitty. Oh, okay. So I took my, my two beautiful children. Yeah. So um, it created this new window into uh, uh, something that, brought it all together for me so it then, felt, it, and it reconnected me with people again i felt i've you know working on, on computers at five in the morning um till one in the afternoon was was disconnecting me from people and people that i really wanted to hang with so the bar business brought that back for me my you know from that background of making skillet tulips and that hospital background that i grew up with every summer to um the bar industry brought that back for me. I was actually behind the bar. I was hosting parties all the time with my friends, and and that bar was and, and, and that bar and, was successful. That bar did it well. was success, really successful. So and it and it was and it was a lot of fun. And and from there, I just wanted to open more bars. It was just it seemed like a natural evolution. Yes. Yeah, so did, then, at what point? So yeah. So now you're realizing, okay, I'm having, I'm, I'm, I'm making money and I'm enjoying this, and I'm right doing all the stuff you wanted to do, which is kind of marrying in many ways your passion with your ability to turn that into something that you could do. Uh, so right. did you then? Was it after that that you said, okay, I'm gonna just sort of? Did you shut down the investment, the, the fund, or the, the? Well, at the time, I was my investment company was we had we had an office in New York, but we had our head off main offices were in downtown LA and I, and I, and I started seeing an opportunity in downtown LA for, and meeting with a friend of mine, Tom Gilmore, who's known for developing Mm -hmm. a lot of the kickstarted downtown in terms of residential. Mm -hmm. And we started talking and about the huge potential downtown and how there was going to be a residential boom and, and, and he was probably working on the project, the Fourth and Main, the project about right, mm-hmm. the old bank district. Mm-hmm. We bought a building together, the El Dorado Lofts building, and um, and I I've, I've saw this new opportunity to bring hospitality to downtown on a and a, a, a basically in a blank blank canvas. Everyone thought I was completely crazy, wanted to do it, but. Um, I saw an opportunity to go into hospitality, change, be part of changing the city, um, and, and build. I had and set, this is set in, up a company, basically two one three, to, to build ten bars downtown. Uh, at and at that point, once I kind of laid out that vision, I I sold my old company and invested everything into downtown LA. And, and that when that was when. That was in two. Um, bought the building in ninety nine, end of ninety eight, first building down here, and then um, sold my company in two thousand. Closed it down, and then. And how did and you then, even get and interested? Started in two and two and three at that same time, at the same point. And at that point, had you just met? Was Tom kind of your entry point into downtown? I mean, you lived in Venice. You have a bar on the West LA. You're sort of hanging out in Hollywood. None of that really says downtown. So, what kind of, what did you see here? Or what? Well, by then I was you? living. I was more of East Side person. I was living in Silver Lake. Um, 
moved. I think I've moved in most neighborhoods in the city <laughs> at this point. Um, but I discovered I was more of an east side person. Um, my offices were downtown. I spent a lot of time downtown and, and really I'm a huge architecture fan. Mm-hmm. And some of the most beautiful historic buildings are, are down here and we're sitting empty. It was, it was, it was uh, kind of a crime. Anybody that's look at the ground floor and it looked the buildings were decrepit in bad shape but they were jewel boxes every building was was block after block of beautiful buildings and based on our vision that when the adaptive reuse ordinance passed all these buildings these old off class b buildings could be converted into lofts and residential when there was such a huge shortage of residential in the city we just saw unbelievable opportunity for downtown to change very similar to the way the Lower East Side changed in New York City and and that's exactly what ended up transpiring. When we come back we'll hear how said Moses turned a nearly hundred year old bar that had become in his words a front for drugs and prostitution into the foundation of his nightlife empire and we'll find out what said thinks is the secret sauce to his success. You're listening to Enthusiastically Los Angeles and I'm your host Glenn Gritzner. Welcome back to Enthusiastically Los Angeles. I'm Glenn Gritzner. So, at this point, the idea of a 24-hour downtown is getting a lot of attention, and residential developer Tom Gilmore has started to work on developing buildings for attracting more residents. But a 24-hour downtown needs nightlife. Enter said. So you bought bought a building down here before you opened up your first bar down here? Yes, bought a building, laid out, you know, Laid out the vision with Tom of the residential boom, but but I'm not a residential developer. I'm not. That's not my passion. That's not kind of who I am. I'm a hospitality person. So I, so in order to make downtown a 24-hour city, everyone was talking about that. We needed the nightlife. People tended to drive into downtown and then drive out at night. Well, and I've said this to you before, but when I read, I remember reading at the time that you where your vision was to open up, I think you said 10 bars in downtown originally. I know it's now more, but, uh, and I thought, this guy's crazy. How could there be 10 bars? And I'm, and I'm was a huge downtown guy then. What do you, do you think that it was just, like you said, you sort of saw this adaptive reuse and you saw the potential in these old buildings and just was sort of, if you build it, they will come kind of mentality? Is that yeah, what? that was the philosophy that, um, I mean, talk about you know, most, most cities, this, most this, cities take, have bar districts at the time down Hollywood had changed more to like a night nightclub centric environment, which I wanted to do the opposite of that. I wanted, you know, there were places velvet ropes and you had to buy a bottle in order to take a seat. And it was just, and the drinks were shit and Mm -hmm. hospitality was terrible. I wanted to do the antithesis of that and, and create a bar district in the city that had no cover charge great drinks, friendly people. And I felt like if I built that, that destination of multiple bars that were within walking distance of each other, that people would come. And I knew the residential was coming. So it was, um, at the time, people thought I was I lost my mind. I joke now that I might have lost my mind, but I found my balls. <laughs> 
So well, and your tolerance for risk had been set on horse tracks, and so <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so the first the the first bar you bought or opened in downtown was uh, the first bar was the Golden Gopher, mm-hmm. and the Golden Gopher was the gnarliest bar I've ever been to in the United States when we bought it. It was and you've been to some such, gnarly, and you've been to some gnarly bars. Oh yeah, I've been to some <laughs> worse ones maybe in in third world countries. But this place was like a third world country bar. It was so it was, it was open. Re- it was a it was an operating bar. It was an operating venue, but it was it was a front for drugs and prostitution. Mm-hmm. All the booze they sold, the bartender rang in behind the bar. He would take it when you paid him. He would take out his own wallet and put it in his own wallet. <laughs> and the manager owner was smoking crack in the bathroom. I mean, it was it was pretty gnarly. It smelled terrible. But it had and you great. Thought, but it this had, is perfect. <laughs> it had, had great bones. It had a great liquor license. Yeah, and, it does have that I old said, liquor license that you can grant. It doesn't. You can sell liquor on the premises, right? Which liquor is, on site, liquor yeah. to go. That's mm. our motto: liquor here, liquor to go. <laughs> and yeah, it was it was a it was a jewel. I saw a huge opportunity with it. But people thought I was crazy just doing that one bar. But I already had laid out a plan for doing ten. That was the first of. And, the, um, and that was the first one, just because it was already going, had a good license, you, you, you know. Oh yeah, it was just a great bar. It had the golden liquor license. The only it's it opened in 1905. Old LA's oldest bar, uh, liquor on site, liquor to go. It's the only license that had that in the whole city. Opened in 1905. Teddy Roosevelt rode in on horseback at the opening. <laughs> I've been tempted to do that at an opening party sometime. <laughs> um. Yeah, it's just great history, and that's and it's been kind open of, the whole time. And, since and we nice. really wanted to build our bars as something timeless, not trendy bars, too. So we wanted, I really wanted that kind of feel, and that's what we're all about. We're saying here in a bar that feels timeless, for sure. I believe yeah, Seven absolutely. Grand. How long has Seven Grand been open? Not to jump ahead. Uh, eleven years now. Yeah, eleven years. It's amazing. So Golden yeah. Gopher was the first one, and it had these had this history, and it was open continuously since nineteen oh five as a bar. Uh well, obviously it closed during Prohibition. Sure. Oh yeah. Right. And that's when it changed its name. It originally opened in nineteen oh five as the Golden Sun. Oh. It closed during Prohibition, of course. Reopened as the Golden Gopher. A man from Minnesota moved out, and that's the mascot <laughs> of the yeah, of, of the University of. Minnesota. Minnesota is the Golden Gopher. He changed the sign. If you look at the neon, you can see specifically that the Golden and Gopher are totally different neon companies and people, <laughs> fabricators that built that. So, um, and you bought that. And you bought that when? Do you remember? Uh, two thousand two, mm-hmm. two thousand three. And did people come? I mean, obviously, a certain kind of clientele was going to that bar that was maybe not your target audience, and so. Did, how did you get the word out? Did people just find it? Did I mean what? How? Well, that bar kind of tied to. Um, it it was incredibly busy from pretty much off the bat. Really, people gravitated towards it. It had it tied kind of to that punk rock ethos that I grew up with. Had a rock and roll vibe to it. Lots of black. Yeah, still does. Um, and great sounds. It's a great jukebox, pool table. It's just a fun rock and roll vibe bar, and and people. I think people downtown gravitated to it right away because it felt like a local bar. But we had some good booze, and uh, hey John. sure, <laughs> and and it was uh, a lot of fun. We 
it and you did. knew, and you knew that you. I mean, you knew this was not. This was the first of, of many. So this was just. It a was good, the first of many. So then but, the but, next, but not to disc, not to discount the work and effort that goes into each one of the bars. That I mean, I was, was going to ask, it was, what was it, it take? Was several it, several years, even though we owned the license, had a great lease on the building, to get the, get the bar open, going through the building safety process and designing and putting our heart and soul into building it out right. It took like a year of construction. So uh, we had ask. to re-support the whole building so we could build a patio within the space because the neighborhood was so gnarly at the time that we were worried about our customers smoking on the street. Um, it was the buildings next door were still really, really in bad shape and had drug dealers and 18th Street gang hanging out. Um, it was it was still pretty. The neighborhood was still a little sketchy. Eighth Street has changed a lot since then. <laughs> now that so I was Whole Foods you, is here. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so how long? I was going to ask that. So how long in between when you closed on the on the building and then, or when you closed? How, did you buy the building? Uh, no, master lease the okay. building. So when you closed on your lease to when you opened? I mean, I guess were you open the whole time or did you shut it down? We shut it down. We yeah. had we had shut it down. It was in. Had horrible to, shape. Probably it had was to fumigate like a health it. department yeah, disaster. Had to fumigate it, probably. It was really bad. We had to rip out the existing bar that was wasn't the original bar. We left whatever was historical there, but it had changed radically since 1905. And we moved the bar back to where it was originally. We found old floor sinks and so forth. And and uh, as I mentioned, we had to re resupport the building so that we could build a patio and former courtyard within within the building and it took i think about a year and a half to two years to get the bar open from when we initially signed the lease just just going through the transfer of the liquor license to you know to remodeling the space building a safety how long did process. you how long did and you think how long did you plan on it taking and how long did it take i thought it was going to be a year so mm -hmm. we definitely went you know I, th I guess we've gotten maybe a little better at anticipating how long it's going to take now. <laughs> I like to think so. And, and our budgets. You just estimate how long after, it's going to take and add 50% probably. Uh, that's what I used to do. Now, now, I can, now, now I'm able to, able to get within 10% 10, 10 on the budget and within a few months on the, on the timeline. But, um, but it's, you know, it's, it's still a challenging process. Um, and, uh, one the city is trying to get better about, but it's still a challenging process. Slow, yeah. So the next bar after Golden Gopher was? Uh, the next one after that was Broadway Bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, so how, how, why was that the second one? Uh, we were able to, it was on Broadway, wanted to do something on Broadway. It's an iconic street with all the historic theaters, a lot of historic, um, you know, historic architecture along that street and we found a great space. I love when somebody brings me a drink. Great Good podcast. Thanks, John. <laughs> great landlord. And um, we just had a vision for building a bar that was inspired by, by um, uh, what was the name of the film? Francis Ford Coppola's epic Italian uh, the Godfather. Godfather. Yeah. It was, there was a Broadway bar in Broadway in New York called Broadway bar it's no longer there but it was in the film and so we modeled it kind of after that bar it had kind of a, a glitz to it but kind of a 
a 70s glitz to it. And that one you opened from scratch. Yeah. Yeah, that one you just found a space and just built out the space. Got the liquor license, went through the whole process. And that bar is still successful operating today. still has that kind of timeless feel to it, too. And how long did that one take to get off the ground? uh, About two and a half years. Yeah. Yeah. So each one has taken taken time, and and ultimately we got to that goal of opening ten places down here, and it's been yeah, quite, a journey, say, quite so, a journey, and it and it, and it was a creative exercise too, because obviously in building ten bars in a central area, you don't want them all to be the same. So I did a lot of traveling throughout the the world, being inspired to, um, by the by the different experiences, just like growing up in Virginia and having those experiences in Virginia, like the, you know, the, the, you know, the experience of drinking juleps till the first firefly comes out, those kind of traditions exist all over the world. And I got inspired by that. In fact, to, by my grandmother's experience in traveling to Kentucky, Ireland, Scotland, uh, to open up whiskey bar the whiskey bar we're sitting in right now yeah so that was gonna be my, my i mean we could go bar by bar and i'd be interested in the whole thing but so seven grand was was the next was the next one is that right that's correct yeah, yeah. and so what was the vision behind this bar that is you know so iconic well the well it was really my love of whiskey and those experiences with my grandmother um at the time people whiskey was not considered a, a drink that young people drank at the time people I said I was building a whiskey bar. They said for like a bunch of old people, <laughs> yeah. old men that want to come in. Yeah. These people were not drinking much whiskey then. But I did see a trend at, at Golden Gopher of people drinking more whiskey than any of the other bars. I'd, I'd opened, before I came downtown, I'd opened three, three bars in Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, West LA, Silver Lake. And so I'd... You know, it's been able to keep track of whiskey sales, but suddenly at Golden Gopher, we're off the charts on on whiskey. So that gave me some confidence to go for it, and I wanted to open the best whiskey bar in the history of Los Angeles. So, mm. so I did a lot of traveling. And this is the best whiskey bar in the history of Los Angeles. But how many whiskey bars have there ever been in Los <laughs> right. Angeles? Right. Yeah. Well, I think we did it right, and now I think it's. Now I think we did better than I think it's one of the best whiskey bars. Well, and how many bars? At the, how many bars? I've at the been time? to a lot of them now. Well, it's I mean it's it's amongst people who know these things. I mean, the Seven Grand is obviously one of the you know most respected, famous whiskey bars slash bars. But what uh, I, I remember when it opened, it was sort of also a thing that I. I know you, you never only served whiskey, right? Even from the beginning, but there was this. But you were a spirit, you know, single spirit focused bar, and that wasn't common. I mean, I don't no, know. No, that wasn't common. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, you saw the whiskey sales, and you loved whiskey, and you thought, well, I love whiskey, and so I wanted to build a bar that was a, a shrine to whiskey and celebrating whiskey in a big way. So I wanted the music to reference that. I wanted the uh, the cocktail menu only to be whiskey based drinks and then we sell other spirits too but but those all go on the bottom shelf like <laughs> the forefront is, is whiskey is the, and how many whiskeys do you carry here now do you how, how many do we have now john well over 800. Well over 800. That. That's, See, I, that's I lose count too. We yeah, just sure. Keep, the well, keeps, and now you're keep, at the number place, keeps rising. Well, now you're at the place too where you're getting whiskey nobody else is getting. Um, yeah, we, we, because we sell so much whiskey, we, we get 
allocations of whiskey that a lot of other bars have trouble getting because they, they want to showcase their brands here because this is the destination. If you're serious about drinking whiskey, then then you come to Seven Grand. And that was kind of the mentality, too. We wanted to build um, with a single spirit group bars that if you thought about drinking tequila, mezcal, thought about drinking whiskey, thought about drinking rum, then the, the, our bars would come to mind, top, top of mind, as the place to go to drink those spirits because we were truly celebrating not only the spirit but also the culture of, the, of where that product comes from. So... And that way we're timeless because we're tied to the spirit and culture of the spirit, not trying to be trendy bars based on, you know, just because whiskey is popular. Because it wasn't then. It was definitely not yeah, popular. Yeah. And a lot of people thought I was crazy. So um, uh, you talked a lot about timelessness. You talked a lot about not wanting to have trendy bars, you know, no cover charges, no ropes, no you know, no bottle service required, et cetera. Um, I know it's a little bit of a cliche, but um, I guess the other thing I would say is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, you know, how many bars do you have now total? Well, 28 venues, 26 bars. So. Yeah, not, I mean, not all in Los Angeles, but mostly in Los Angeles. Mostly. But also... Mostly. Downtown LA is still like our... The epicenter. Been our focus in the center of what yeah. we've done. But you've also got San Diego, Austin. I know you're doing Nashville... Um, um Den- others Den- Den- Denver, yeah. Denver soon. But 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 all your I mean I'm sure your bars have varying levels of success, but as far as I can tell, your bars all you know, they all have their own thing. I mean you've got Tony's over in the arts district, everything from there to, you know, Kanye. Um but they've all been sort of successful and we could talk about, you know, Las Perlas. I mean we haven't even gotten into Coles and the Varnish, which is a whole other sort of thing Coles could be a whole podcast I think <laughs> yeah, the history well, of that place would be a lot of fun it's we, a whole podcast I'd love to do an oral, I want to do some oral histories I might do the oral history of, of you know Coles or, or something like that and, and yeah Coles for, for those who don't know is one of the oldest restaurants in Los Angeles originally the home of the French dip so said says although Philippe would like to argue with him which is fun and then the varnish in the back was often called LA's first speakeasy I don't know but certainly in a very influential bar a few years ago won best bar in the United States by uh, Tales of Cocktail so um, all influential but my question was what um, what do you think you know what do you think your, your 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 secret is why do you think it's true that you know after all these bars that they've all worked yeah well very work to varying degrees we're always trying to make our bars better we, we're never going to rest on our laurels and think we're the best and just going to to rest thinking that where we have kind of a philosophy within and it's thanks to the people I work with I work with incredible people and a lot of the, our top managers have worked their way up from barbacks at our at our bars too um it's a, an amazing amazing team of people well I was going to say so I, mean, I, a- I think I'm like a small piece of it now I'm just trying to put the right people in place to to keep to b- keep building organically and and what we have. But well, I tell and people that, that it really is the key. It's the people, and it's it's our cult, the culture we've built, which I'm probably the thing I'm most proud about. The amazing people that I work with and that have moved up in our company and and had and have the leadership skills to really lead 
lead teams and keep fostering growth in our company. And what do you look for when you, because I always tell people that, especially seven grand really is in many ways, um, patient zero of the cocktail scene in Los Angeles. I mean, I can't, I don't know that I could find a cocktail bar that's more than three or four degrees of separation from somebody who was sort of the original all-star team here. Um, but, but what, especially now that you've had to really do this more, what do you look for when you, you, you talk about the people and the culture being key to your kind of secret when you're mm-hmm. bringing somebody in, what do you look for? What do you want? What, what philosophy do you want them to bring to this job? To this? Well, we, well, we have, we voted and we have, um, at a point where we had over 400 people working with us, we put a vote out for everyone to vote on the ethos, the things that, that defined us and our culture. We are because we do have a special culture of people that are really in this for the right reasons. They're they're here to be to take care of people, service to service to prosper is one of our slogans, and uh, we learned it from you know, it's what what I grew up with in Virginia. But the people behind the bar right now, John Colthorpe, exhibits that every day. It's like the act of service is a noble it's a noble profession, taking care of other people, and it comes from there. It has to come from the heart. It can't uh, to be authentic, and and um, and then by wanting to serve people, you, you, it makes you excited to get better about serving great drinks. And you know, the, the great drink is just part of that connection with people. Well, and I've always and, I've always told people that what I what I believe that your bars have, have been influential nationally is that ethos, which is you know. Seven Grand is known as a whiskey bar, but if somebody would have come in the second week and asked for a vodka soda, they'd be happily given a vodka soda. Oh, sure. Yeah, you can order whatever you want. We, we refuse to serve flavored, favored vodkas, favored well, spirits. You've got to draw the line somewhere. Fl- I mean, flavored come on. whiskeys and so <laughs> forth because we don't want a good whiskey polluted with artificial ingredients. Sure. But other than that, you can order anything you want. Yeah, any, we have all the spirits. Yeah. If you want to order vodka soda... I think you're missing out on some great whiskey, but sure. who am I to say that, that yeah. that's the wrong thing? Well, on a busy Saturday well, night, sometimes drink. the bartenders so we, want we to order want, a bar. Yeah, we want to make our customers happy. We want our customers to have a great time and be comfortable, okay. and we want this to be their second home. That's that's the ultimate thing for us is when our customers tell us this is their second home. This is where they like to spend their time, and that's what we want to breed is regulars and people that yeah. are, feel comfortable in our establishments. We want to be the, the heart, the pulse of the community a place where you can get off your cell phone and off of social media and relax. Yeah. Last question. So you opened your first bar 22 years ago. You started getting to going in downtown 16, 17, 18 years ago. You're now got 26 bars in. What would the said? How? What advice would the said Moses of 2018 give the said Moses of 1998? Um, which, which years? <laughs> 1998. <laughs> the said Moses of today, of when you were starting in the hospitality business, when you were you know, sort of I, just getting to going with this whole sort of vision. I mean, I think it came. It, it, I've learned a lot along the way in terms of um, the biggest reward for me. I've I had this vision for building all these bars but the biggest reward for me has been the people the great people that i've worked with and that's what drives me today is like taking care of other people and i'm so proud of the family we've built of the amazing people i've worked work with on a daily basis it's just super rewarding and i just feel like i'm part of something bigger than myself which is a great way to come to work every day 
Since recording this podcast, Sed has rebranded his company from 213 Ventures to Pouring with Heart, which pretty accurately reflects what his bars do and also reflects the company's growing footprint beyond the 213 area code. Along those lines, Sed now owns 28 bars in 26 venues across the United States. Initially branching out to San Diego with the second seven grand, Sed now also owns bars in Austin, Texas, including a seven grand in the Los Perilous there, and has also opened a seven grand in Denver, with more cities to come. And most of his bars in Los Angeles offer a community cocktail, with one dollar from each going to support the Union Rescue Mission, a model that Sed wants to replicate at his bars across the country. Oh, and one more thing. Another guest on Enthusiastically Los Angeles will be Gary Leonard, downtown's quasi-official photographer and collector of all things Los Angeles. But, unbeknownst to most, Gary has quite a past in L.A.'s punk rock scene. Oh, yeah. Gary was very much part of that punk scene. I was playing at venues like Alice Bar and and, uh, and Gorky's and places like that and and hanging out there and Gary, so you're, was, Gary was always a part of that scene and seen those early bands and punk rock bands in Los Angeles and actually one more thing you heard said talk about his partnership with downtown housing pioneer Tom Gilmore I didn't know it at the time but Tom eventually sat down with me for his own interview so you'll hear his very entertaining story on an upcoming episode, including his version of those early days with Sed. A lot of people thought Tom was insane. I, I met with him. I'm like, I get it. This, this makes total sense. I guess maybe my, quant, my ability to visualize numbers or to look at things in a more conceptual way that made me think like, oh, this is obvious. This is really going to happen. And in the meantime, and when, I, else- when I told him that, I'm like, this is obvious. This is going to happen for this, this, and this reason. He's like, really? You're the only one that believes me. <laughs> his, even his partner at the time was like, oh, Tom, what the fuck are we doing? <laughs> I met with a real estate broker down here that's, that said, like, Tom Gilmore is crazy. If you follow Tom Gilmore, you're going straight to the poorhouse. <laughs> I mean, they, and now that broker ended up taking credit for the Renaissance, but. Not naming names is promise. <laughs> and you and nothing you s- negative, but um, but but that was just illustrating how crazy people thought Tom was, and that the Renaissance there was there had been a lot of false starts downtown. So I think a lot of people were burnt out, like with this vision of downtown coming back. But now it seems obvious. In it, retrospect, a lot of people coming down here now it seems obvious. But at the time, people thought Tom was crazy. They thought I was crazy, and. Um, but to us, it just looked obvious for and so some the, reason. So everybody else is telling him you're crazy, and you're like, I'll sell my company, I'll change my career, and I'll totally yeah. do everything different. That's what I told Tom. I'm selling my company. I'm all in. I'm putting everything in on downtown. And Tom's like, really? Oh, oh wow. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> so we were, we were both putting it all on the line, and, and we're still super tight friends to this day. Tom's a great guy. That's our show this week. Please subscribe to this podcast, and if you like it, please do write a review. If you want to find out more, or if you want to read some of my thoughts on downtown bars and restaurants from before podcasts were a thing, you can visit my website at www.amateurenthusiastla.com. 
You've been listening to Enthusiastically LA, which was conceived, hosted, written, and produced by yours truly, Glenn Ritzner, otherwise known as the Amateur Enthusiast. Thanks for listening.